Warning. The podcast you are about to hear contains coarse language and tells stories of witches. Unfortunately, this history occasionally involves oppression, victimization, physical and sexual violence, and even torture. We at Missing Witches will always concentrate on these women's power, legacies, victories, and magic, but we can't overlook their struggles or shelter ourselves from reality. We promise never to dwell or be graphic. Email us at missingwitches at gmail.com if you want to be heard. And blessed be. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Welcome to the Missing Witches Podcast, where we tell stories of badass women who have practiced magic. In this podcast, we go looking for the witches we've been missing. We is myself, Risa, and my co-producer and sound designer, Amy. This is a feminist history storytelling podcast where we try to fill in the gaps in our mental maps of what a witch is and where are they and what have they been doing? It'll necessarily be a mix of history, gossip, and maybe some magic to fill in the blanks. Our focus is stretching our perspective to find witches from all kinds of cultures. Our goals are to learn something, to do justice to people we admire, If we can, give love, research, curiosity, respect, and voice to some witches whose stories we've been missing, and just, you know, not fuck it up too much. With that in mind, we want to start with a witch whose identity and contributions have been multiply erased, but whose work guides the mind and practices of pretty much everyone who touches anything remotely mystical. The maybe mixed race probably queer, woman artist behind the world's most famous tarot deck, Pamela Coleman-Smith. Some accounts claim Coleman-Smith's mother was Jamaican. Some suggest she was adopted. Stuart R. Kaplan, who started to import the tarot to the U.S. in 1968, gives the first real history of the deck and kind of acknowledges for the first time Coleman-Smith's contribution. He writes, Corrine Pamela Coleman-Smith known as Pam to her family, was born on February 16, 1878, at 28 Belgrave Road, Pimlico, Middlesex, England. Her father, Charles Edward Smith, an American merchant, and her mother, Corrine Coleman Smith, are believed to have been from Brooklyn. He goes on to say, The ancestry of her mother foreshadows Smith's interest in mysticism and the occult. The Colemans had been for several generations followers of the mystic philosopher and visionary Swedenborg, Artistic roots also lay with Smith's ancestors. Her great-grandfather and his wife both wrote children's books, and her grandfather was a painter of the Hudson River School. The most thorough storytelling and research on Pamela Coleman-Smith that I've found is on a website created by a guy named Phil Norfleet. He finds some wonderful and bizarre tidbits. One of my favorites is that in this genealogy that he traces of Coleman-Smith's family lines, he finds an ancestor of hers on the Smith side who was, quote, murdered with a hideous witchcraft in the winter of 1684. This ancestor, Philip Smith, concerned about relieving the indigences of a wretched woman in the town, who being dissatisfied at some of his just cares about her, expressed herself unto him in such a manner that he declared himself thenceforth apprehensive of receiving mischief at her hands. He became sick delirious in various languages. Some of the young men in town went to give disturbance unto the woman. 
and all the while they were disturbing her, he was at ease and slept as a weary man. These were the only times they perceived him to take sleep in all his illness. Mr. Smith dies, and the jury that viewed his corpse found a swelling on one breast, his back full of bruises, and several holes that seemed made with awls. Mary Webster, the woman who disturbed Philip Smith, was sent to Boston, tried for witchcraft, and acquitted. But the young men of Hadley tried their own experiment upon her. They dragged her out of the house, hung her up until she was near dead, let her down, rolled her some time in the snow, and at last buried her in it and there left her. But she survived. And still, she persisted. With the benefit of some perspective here, it sure sounds a lot like Philip Smith tried to rape a woman who told him where he could stick it. He, in the course of sticking at places, got syphilis, which was definitely raging in the New World since Columbus's arrival, thanks colonialism. And then Philip Smith died blaming a woman who wouldn't tolerate him, only resting well when he knew she was being tortured. I gotta warn you, a lot of witch history is gonna sound like this. By the time we get to Pamela Coleman Smith, her family tree has generations of children's book authors, artists, and passionate advocates of emancipation. Her early years were spent in Brooklyn and then in Jamaica just before the turn of the century, with the Holocaust of the European witch hunts and the slave trade just a little behind them, and the world war is not yet in sight. Swedenborg, the influential spiritualist who the family followed, was an early voice for equality and social reform. In The Last Judgment from 1758, Swedenborg wrote, The African people are more capable of enlightenment than all other peoples on this earth, because they are of such a character as to think interiorly, and thus to accept truths and acknowledge them. Ideas like this directly fueled the anti-slavery movement, inspiring writer and anti-slavery activist Lydia Maria Child and poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Even Swedenborgians who are non-religious took inspiration from his descriptions of heaven to try and create social utopias on earth. Charles Fourier, early socialist philosopher, credited with the first use of the word feminism, though shout out to Eugénie Potini-Pierre, who independently coined the term and founded the Federation of French Feminists and the Union des Femmes. Fourier was inspired by Swedenborg to advance the idea of an ideal earthly society that echoed Swedenborg's order of the universe, where all people had equal standing, regardless of gender, race, or sexual orientation. At the tail end of the 19th century, heck, even now, in a lot of places, these are some pretty enlightened ideas for a young woman artist to get to grow up in. And to return quickly to the question of this missing witch's race, because it is an open question on the internet and among people who care to know, here are a couple more clues we can guess from in a past that may have been obscured. There are many references to her from society writing at that time that try to wrap their head around her race and background and enjoy exoticizing her in the process. In Bohemia in London, this kind of famous scandalous gossipy description of the scene she found a family in, the author Ransom describes her as a strange little creature, goddaughter of a witch and sister to a fairy very dark and not thin, and when she smiled with a smile that was peculiarly infectious, her twinkling gypsy eyes seemed to vanish altogether. John Butler Yeats, 
portrait artist and father of that Yeats, William Butler Yeats, who was a friend and magical cohort of Pamela Coleman Smith's, said she looked Japanese, and Irene Cooper Willis, author and badass barrister, described her as dear, funny, Chinese-looking little artist and painter. So she definitely had color and played with cultural references in her dress and self-representation. And she wrote and illustrated and performed these awesome, rebellious Jamaican folk stories and owned her personal difference and diversity as she made her way around the turn-of-the-century world. Age 15, back in Brooklyn, Coleman Smith enrolls at Pratt in Clinton Hill, a brand new college just blocks away from Bed-Stuy. The college, only about a decade old, opened by one of these self-made millionaire oil barons, was one of the first in the country to be open to all people, regardless of class, color, or gender. The school's motto was, be true to your work, and your work will be true to you, which could be a useful motto for the work of virtual magic, if you're into that kind of thing. At Pratt, she studied art with Arthur Wesley Dow, who was this revolutionary thinker in his approach to art. It's like 1910 or something, and he rejects the idea of just copying nature. He didn't believe that art should be relegated to the drawing rooms of rich people. He was an illustrator, painter, poster artist, who shifted the artist's focus to the decision-making process of composition. He emphasized the independent instinct and will of the maker. The artist's work was to build harmonies. He considered space art to be visual music, and taught his students, including Georgia O'Keeffe and the Overbeck sisters of the arts and crafts movement, Japanese design concepts like Notan, the play of light and dark to create dimension. For what it's worth, the idea that both light and dark are required to give life, that our shadows give strength and dimension is a pretty fundamental magical principle. Coleman Smith didn't graduate from Pratt. Her mother died in Jamaica, and she missed a lot of school. Maybe because of bouts of illness? I read somewhere that this was migraine, and that Dow helped her understand her synesthesia, a cross-firing of the senses that allows the synesthete to taste numbers, hear colors, or in Coleman Smith's case, to see music. It does feel like there's something here about how chronic pain and illness are experienced, especially by women. And maybe that's just because, in my experience, pain and especially the way migraine affects perception, can definitely bring a person closer to an understanding of how thin our lived and constructed realities are. We know for sure that we are only seeing our brain's best attempt to summarize our senses when pain knocks sense reality sideways. Coleman Smith writes and illustrates the Anansi stories at this time. Anansi is a spider spirit keeper of all knowledge in stories. In the Caribbean, especially in Jamaica, this spirit from Ghanaian folk religion is an essential icon of resistance. Her father takes her to London to promote the Anansi stories and to look for work for her. And he finds a way to introduce her to Bram Stoker, currently manager of the Lyceum Theatre, who has just published a hit horror novel called Dracula. This seems like such a weird choice for a 19th century dad of a daughter, but it works out. 
and Bram Stoker hires Pamela Coleman-Smith to illustrate an 18-page souvenir brochure that he was writing for performances of the upcoming Lyceum Theater Tour. In New York, in October 1899, she meets Bram Stoker again, as well as Henry Irving and Ellen Terry, just heroes and icons of the London theater at the time. And she talks them into letting her join the tour as one of the minor cast members. And Ellen Terry sort of adopts her and gives her the nickname Pixie, which she embraces for the rest of her life. Ellen Terry is kind of magic in and of herself. She writes of mesmerizing audiences, of entering into a mutual transformative trance with them. And there is so much to be said about magic in the theater, but let's leave it behind the fourth wall and the red curtains for now and keep following our Pixie Witch. Because in December 1899, Pixie's father dies unexpectedly in New York. She's an orphan now, but she's abroad with this theater family, the only family she has now. So she continues the tour and then returns with them to London when it's done. In London, she makes her way as an artist. She's making a living as an illustrator and a set designer. She's working closely with William Butler Yeats and Bram Stoker and the Lyceum Theatre, while also writing and illustrating books of her own. Her style just resonated with a visionary, romantic, modern seam in contemporary artistic practice. And these big names of big men whose stories we are much more likely to know recognized her as one of their own. She independently publishes an artistic journal called The Green Sheaf, with lots of writing on dreams, including new work by Yeats. As a member of the Suffrage Atelier, a collective of professional illustrators, she contributes art to fight for women's right to the vote in Great Britain. And she also donates work to the Red Cross. In 1907, she has this major show in New York of 72 drawings in watercolors. She's actually the first painter to exhibit in Alfred Stieglitz's Little Galleries of the Photo Secession. Her show marks a turning point in the fame of this gallery. It was the first non-photographic success in this space, which would shortly after become famous for introducing the most avant-garde European artists of the time to America, including Henri Matisse, Auguste Rodin, Pablo Picasso, and Marcel Duchamp. Well-known music and art critic at the time, James Gibbons Hunegar, reviewing the show, wrote, Pamela Coleman-Smith is a young woman with that quality rare in either sex, imagination. He called her painting entitled Death in the House absolutely nerve-shattering and said that not even Edward Munch could have succeeded better in arousing a profound disquiet. He wrote that the artist belonged to the favored choir of William Blake and his mystics. Back in London, Pixie hosts a weekly at-home for artists, performing stories from the Jamaican oral tradition and from Yeats and others. This young woman living alone becomes a connector and a focal point for artists and thinkers. Throughout this time, she's living parallel lives. She's a working artist who is also becoming immersed in magical ceremony as a member of the secret group, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Coleman Smith was a member of the Golden Dawn 
and then of the independent and rectified right of the Golden Dawn for about a decade. The Golden Dawn are an influential magical order that share some origins with other European hermetic and heretical societies and philosophers the Freemasons and Rosicrucians, for example. But they differed in some pretty key ways for Pixie Coleman Smith and modern Bohemians, most especially in that they welcomed women in perfect equality with men. As this author, Denisov, writes in this great history, The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, 1888-1901, Golden Dawn members were primarily interested in magical philosophy and traditional ritual practice for the advancement of the individual's spirit. Influences included ancient Egyptian religion, the Kabbalah, Christianity, Freemasonry, paganism, theurgy, alchemy, early modern grimoires, and Enochian magic, such as that recorded by the early modern occultist John Dee. Magic for the order was the use of methodological practices to cause changes in consciousness or the material world in accord with the universal will. The collective members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn made the 19th century's most serious and sustained effort to reimagine and re-engage with a prehistoric occult tradition. In this sense, the Order can be seen as the major Victorian author of the often fictional, but no less influential history of occultism and natural magic. Coleman Smith was a member at a time after secret documents of the Order had been left in a cab and publicized, and the Order had fractured into pieces, and Aleister Crowley, that queer sex magic beast of the Hermetic schools at the time, was actively making fun of the leader of the group that Pixie stuck with. A.E. Waite. Waite has some of my sympathy. He brought incredible translations and studies of hidden wisdom into the world, books on the Rosicrucians, the ancient Arthurian legends, and more. But I guess maybe he didn't put it all together and light it all on fire in the way Crowley wanted to do. Waite was kind of tentative, and his interpretations of the amazing text he brought to light feel almost intentionally dense and convoluted like he wasn't ready to see something that was there and winking at him. I think if you've ever woken up at night and felt a spirit something close to you and chosen to turn on the TV or music to tune out that creepy feeling, then you and I can perhaps relate to what weight might have been feeling. What he did do, though, was recognize the importance of the tarot and the talent of his pixie artist friend. He made notes from his research on the symbolism of the suits and of the major arcana and commissioned pixie, a big job for very little cash, as she called it, to complete the pieces of art for the deck. He's also pretty fucking dismissive of her at times and snide about her contributions and doesn't even mention her name in a bunch of his writing about this new tarot deck. And her name gets left off the deck for years. But at other points, he does say, I have embraced an opportunity which has been somewhat of the unexpected kind and have interested a very skillful and original artist in the proposal to design a set. 
Miss Pamela Coleman Smith, in addition to her obvious gifts, has some knowledge of tarot values. She has lent a sympathetic ear to my proposal to rectify the symbolism by reference to channels of knowledge which are not in the open day. Norfleet notes that Waite had some very strong ideas about the design of the 22 trump cards of the major arcana, but he was relatively unconcerned with the 56 cards of the minor. Pamela Coleman-Smith had almost full creative reign with respect to those cards. Each card in the deck was to receive a unique illustration, almost unheard of at the time, and in all, a total of 80 unique images would need to be created. 78 tarot cards, plus the designs for the card back and the nameplate. Prior to this time, tarot decks had never been manufactured in the English-speaking world. The origins of tarot are unknown. It seems to pop up first in Europe around the 14th century as a deck of cards used in games of chance and divination. It's sometimes called the Book of Divination of the Gypsies, as the Roma people were its main keepers for centuries. There's a great story about the Egyptian origin of the tarot from a French occult philosopher, Dr. Papu, recounted in Ralph Metzner's 1971 history, Maps of Consciousness. Metzner, as an interesting aside, is the Harvard-educated psychologist who participated in psychedelic research at Harvard University in the 1960s with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who came to be known as Ramdas. Metzner's been into consciousness research, including psychedelics, yoga, meditation, and shamanism for over 45 years. And I feel like he takes pleasure in the fact that this story comes to us with its source mysteriously concealed by Pepu, as he puts it. The story goes like this. Egyptian priests, when faced with the imminent destruction of their temples and orders, held a council to decide how to transmit their teachings. At first, they thought of confiding these secrets to virtuous men, recruited by the initiates, who would transmit them from generation to generation. But one priest, observing that virtue is a most fragile thing, proposed to confide scientific traditions to vice. Vice, he said, would never fail completely, and through it we are sure of a long and durable preservation of our principles. I love this sourceless story, too. And especially the idea that you can trust vice better than virtue to survive and pass things on. Metzner continues, It has been proposed that the 22 cards which make up the major arcana of the tarot were, in the Egyptian mystery schools, hung on the walls of a gallery in the form of tablets or paintings, along with hieroglyphs and other symbols. The initiate had to pass through the gallery, elucidating the meaning of the symbols as a kind of test. And in the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, a version of the life of Jesus supposedly transcribed from the Akashic record, Jesus is described as passing through such a series of tests in an Egyptian school. The earliest known deck to use the structure of 22 major arcana and 56 minor arcana is the deck of the Sulebuska family, created by an unknown artist in Venice around 1490. While other decks float around, this is really the only one with an illustration for every card, 
until Pixie, instead of just a number and a suit for the minor arcana. And this layering of imagery makes them feel full of magic. There are references to alchemical philosophy in the cards, not just the greedy secrets of turning lead into gold, but the actual alchemy of the transmutation of the soul. The magic of becoming one with the divine, or the universe, of dreaming the god dream. These tarot aren't just for fortune telling. They contain, as Metzner puts it, symbols representing the actual tools and methods of psychic transformation. Images of the Solobuska deck were acquired by the British Museum just a few years before Coleman Smith began her project with Waite, and there are some very clear references and influences. And also clear points of departure, if you check out the Ten of Swords in the Solobuska versus the Waite-Smith, and then check out the Ten of Wands in Waite-Smith, it's almost as though Waite and Smith intentionally said no. That imagery of hoarding away belongs in the path of the wands. At this same stage, in the path of swords, the image is defeated in another way and is much more violent. The ten swords pierce the body dead on the floor, but in the sky, a storm hovers on the edge of sunshine. It is hopelessness with a golden dawn on the horizon. This deck, made in London just a breath before the world tumbles into the darkness and tragedy of a world war, is a whole new map made in direct reference to a palimpsest of symbols that came before. And while we can see from Waite's studies and notes that he provided some clear direction, especially for the major arcana, Pixie had all the power of an artist creator. She drew her friends into the cards and her own vision of the world beyond this one, a world she accessed through art. In 1908, for Strand Magazine, Pixie discussed her experience of synesthesia. You ask me how these pictures are evolved, said Miss Coleman Smith. They are not pictures of the music theme, pictures of the flying notes, not conscious illustrations of the name given to a piece of music, but just what I see when I hear music, thoughts loosened and set free by the spell of sound. When I take a brush in hand and the music begins, it is like unlocking the door into a beautiful country. There, stretched far away, are plains and mountains and the billowy sea. And as the music forms a net of sound, the people who dwell there enter the scene. Tall, slow-moving, stately queens, with jeweled crowns and garments gay or sad, who walk on mountaintops or stand beside the shore, watching the water people. These water folk are passionless and sway or fall with little heed of time. They toss the spray and bending down, dive headlong through the deep. There are the dwellers too of the great plain who sit and brood, made of stone and motionless. The trees which slumber till some elf goes by with magic spear and wakes the green to life towers, white and tall, standing against the darkening sky. 
For a long time, the land I saw when hearing Beethoven was unpeopled. Hills, plains, ruined towers, churches by the sea. After a time, I saw far off a little company of spearmen ride away across the plain. But now the clanging sea is strong with the salt of the lashing spray and full of elemental life. The riders of the waves, the queen of tides, who carries in her hand the pearl-like moon and bubbles gleaming on the inky wave. Often when hearing Bach, I hear bells ringing in the sky, rung by whirling chords held in the hands of maidens dressed in brown. There is a rare freshness in the air like morning on a mountaintop with opal-colored mists that chase each other fast across the sea. Chopin brings night. Gardens where mystery and dread lurk under every bush, but joy and passion throb within the air, and the cold moon bewitches all the scene. There is a garden that I often see, with moonlight glistening on the vine leaves, and drooping roses with pale petals fluttering down, tall misty trees and purple sky, and lovers wandering there. A drawing of that garden I have shown to several people, and asked them if they could play the music that I heard when I drew it. They have all, without any hesitation, played the same. I do not know the name, but, well, I know the music of that place. In 1911, Pixie left the Golden Dawn behind. She converted to Roman Catholicism, and although she claimed it was such fun with its rites and rituals, it was certainly not an easy choice in Protestant England, and it might also have been lonely. She withdrew from most of her former friends at this time, and her artistic output slowed. In 1913, she illustrated Ellen Terry's book, The Russian Ballet, and she published the illustrated book entitled Bluebeard. And in 1914, she illustrated Eunice Fuller's work called The Book of Friendly Giants, which, if you are a fan of Roald Dahl's The BFG, you must check out. Norfleet writes that in late 1918, Pamela received a legacy from a deceased uncle, and this money gave her the freedom to set up her life in Cornwall, in southwest England. Norfleet is of the opinion that she chose that area because pixies were believed to be particularly concentrated in the region around Devon and Cornwall. She always thought herself a pixie, who really didn't fit in well among ordinary humans. She once told W.B. Yeats that she'd been able to see fairies in Ireland. An article in Fairy Magazine from 2017 gives a little more insight into what those years for her might have been like. They write that Coleman Smith died in 1951 in Bude, Cornwall, where she lived in a home bought with an inheritance from an uncle. The occupation listed on her death certificate reads, Spinster of Independent Means. Though just a decade earlier, she'd been recognized by the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce. She was no longer listed as an artist and was making a meager living running a home for vacationing Catholic priests. Her estate was willed to her flatmate, Nora Lake, a reputed spiritualist. 
Norlake was likely Coleman Smith's lover. The two had been companions for 40 years. And although nothing definitive is written about the artist's sexual predilections, she never married and was linked to no men and spent her time in the company of women, many of them known queers, such as the handsome Edith Edie Craig, a bisexual suffragist who famously lived in a menage a trois with a straight couple until her death. Craig was the model for the Queen of Wands in Coleman Smith's tarot. I was telling my beautiful witch friend Sue about Coleman Smith's story, and I got to this part about Cornwall and fairies, and she said, Oh, I live there. It's heavy witchy. It's almost encircled by water, cliffs, and beaches, and then in the middle it's the moors. You can just walk around and find ancient stone circles. I was up there at night one night to see the stars, and a fox walked right up to me, stood and stared at me for way too long. So I love to imagine Pixie there. And I can see getting enough of busy London and tiring of a heavily ritualized and performance-based magical scene led by these men with their budding egos. <laughs> and I can see heading for the sea. It seems like maybe she made up her own personal practice, inspired by both Catholicism's mysteries and by her love with the beautiful name and the uncanny intuitions. Nora Lake. I see a kind of beautiful life balanced there between the moor and the waves. Often, Pixie's characterized as dying penniless and unappreciated. And though, of course, it's infuriating that she didn't earn the royalties she deserved from the most popular tarot deck of all time, I think she did live a kind of magical life right to the end. After all, she lived 40 years with her love and best friend. No small achievement in its own right for any of us. She had independent means and a job where she was her own boss, caring for, and I imagine whispering sacred and profane secrets with old Catholic priests. <laughs> and in her tarot cards, she left images of her friends, of her visions, of her personal, vast understanding of the symbolism shared between cultures and linking our minds together through ancient archetypes and to the spirit world. She left us a map that deepened our understanding beyond words, like she was hearing a distant music and translating it for millions of seers to come. In 1908, Pixie Coleman Smith wrote an article for Craftsman Magazine, the principal voice of the arts and crafts movement in the United States, called Should the Art Student Think? So we'll end our first episode with this and try to take Pixie's advice to heart for all our practices of art and send it with love to all you witches in all the ways you're out there trying to bring about your magic. Keep an open mind to all things. Hear all the music you can, good music, for sound and form are more closely connected than we know. Think good thoughts of beautiful things, colors, sounds, places, not mean thoughts 
When you see a lot of dirty people in a crowd, do not remember only the dirt, but the great spirit that is in them all and the power that they represent. Through ugliness is beauty sometimes found. Banish fear. Brace your courage. Place your ideal high up with the sun, away from the dirt and squalor and ugliness around you, and let that power that makes the roar of the high-powered presses enter into your work. Energy, courage, life, love. Use your wits, use your eyes. Perhaps you use your physical eyes too much and only see the mask. Find eyes within. Look for the door into the unknown country. You must be a witch. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the Missing Witches Coven. If you want to know more about Pixie, check out our show notes at missingwitches.com and join us on Wednesday for Witches Found, the companion series to Missing Witches where we talk to contemporary witches about the themes that come up in this week's show. So this week we'll be talking to energy worker and tarot reader Rita about divination. So that's Missing Witches Sundays, Witches Found Wednesdays, and as a new podcast, the best way that you can help us is by reviewing. We'll be devoting our Halloween episode of Witches Found to you. Yes, you. We'll be spotlighting some of the badass witches we've met and found online, and also reading some of our favorite podcast reviews. Like I said, reviews help us the most as a new podcast, so thank you in advance. We can't wait to read them. And of course, the weirder and witchier, the better. Blessed be.